0: Hello everybody, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. Except, of course, last Tuesday we actually missed our show, so today is more like the last fortnight in the church. In any event, the principle is the same. We are going to break out our prospector's pans, dip it into the the raging waters of headlines about the Vatican and the global church over the last couple of weeks, and see if we can pluck ourselves a few nuggets of gold. Today is a kind of potpourri, a mix. Because we've got three news headlines and then a couple of longer-term analyses. Headlines are these. First, tragedy in Italy, a shipwreck in southern Italy that is claimed to date 71 lives and counting, is not only, of course, a humanitarian catastrophe, but it has also set off the inevitable political polemic about the best way to deal with a migrant and refugee crisis. Pope Francis is once again a protagonist in that conversation. We'll break down what is going on. Secondly, tumult in Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation, recently conducted national elections, which has produced a new chief executive, but also deepening controversy in which the Catholic Church is playing a part. We'll take a look at what's happening there. Third, paralysis in Ukraine, the one year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, came and went. Pope Francis's lonely call for a ceasefire and peace negotiations is either the indication of a kind of nadir of the Vatican's diplomatic relevance or an epical shift from north to south in terms of the locus of its attention, we'll explain. Then, longer term things. We are coming up next Monday on the one decade anniversary of Pope Francis in office. Going to give you a couple of observations connected to that. One having to do with the, well, basically the paradoxical moment we are in with regard to the Francis papacy, the contrast between the rhetoric and the operations of this papacy at the one-decade mark. And then secondly, we will also be looking at the surprising powerlessness of popes, despite what is going to be a kind of festival of verbiage regarding the, the pope and the papacy we'll look at a couple of long-term trend lines that appear to be beyond the power of any pope to arrest. All that and more is waiting for you this week on Last Week in the Church, so please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Thank you for being with us. Apologies for last week. We had every intention of doing Last Week in the Church, last week, as normal. Unfortunately, I came down with a pretty nasty cold And in my post-operative state, coming down with a cold is no longer a 24-hour thing. It took three, four, five days to kind of shake off the worst of it. But in any event, I'm good to go now. We are back. And I promise you that next time we're going to miss a show, we will try to give you some advance notice. All right. We begin this week here in Il Bel Paese, that is the nation of Italy, where the latest migrant and refugee has kind of scandalized the country and become the the country's number one news story. What happened essentially was that on February 26th, a ship full of migrants and refugees crashed, ran ashore in Southern Italy, a region called Calabria, on a beach called Cutro. This shipwreck, it was unusual for a couple of different reasons. One, its point of departure was not Libya or North Africa. It apparently departed from the coast of Turkey. And secondly, its cargo was not the usual boatloads of North Africans, people who were coming from Sub-Saharan Africa or from Ethiopia and Eritrea. Instead, these were Pakistanis, Afghanis, Syrians, Somalis, all of whom making an effort to try to flee violence and chaos in their lands of origin and to make it into Europe and points beyond as I said, the ship crashed on the beach in Kutro. As of latest count, 71 dead bodies had been identified. Experts believe that number could climb by the end as high as 100, because there are still an estimated 20 to 40 individuals who were apparently aboard the boat whose, whose remains, whose fate, has not yet been identified. Now, Whenever this happens, of course, it is at one level a deep humanitarian tragedy. I mean, particularly in this case, because so many of the victims of this shipwreck were actually children and infants. I mean, we saw the bodies of infants who would wash to shore there at Couture. And particularly in a country such as Italy, where family and children are really everything, those images are just devastating. and they leave one heart sick. Beyond the, however, the immediate instinct of compassion and concern for the victims, there is, of course, the question of responsibility. Who ultimately is responsible for this tragedy? And that, of course, is open debate that is breaking along somewhat predictable left v right grounds. So the debate over this tragedy has broken down along somewhat predictable left v right grounds. The conservative government under Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney has taken the position that this is the latest indication of the evils of human trafficking, those who attempt to profit from the desperation of these migrants and refugees, and therefore, is an argument for a kind of law and order crackdown on these sort of trafficking operations and you know, not letting people get away with this anymore. The left, on the other hand, is arguing This is also an indication of the need for policies of greater tolerance, compassion, and welcome for people who are fleeing these desperate situations and the need for the Italian government to see this more as a humanitarian and less as a kind of law and order crisis. Now, in the middle of all that, Pope Francis has, in a sense, sort of given aid and comfort to both sides in this argument during his Angelus Address on this past Sunday. He condemned the human traffickers who were involved in these kinds of operations and said that it is important that these journeys of hope not ever again turn into a journey of death. Now, that was taken as a statement that was in some ways in tandem with or parallel to the kinds of political notes being struck by the government. On the other hand, the Holy Father is also well-known for his advocacy of tolerance, welcome, and compassion for people trying to make their way to a better life. And so exactly how to parse the Pope's own contribution to this debate is unclear. What is clear is that this is shaping up as the, the first test case of the collision between the center-right Italian government under Maloney and a newly emboldened center-left in Italy under its new leadership. Secretary of the Democratic Party, Ellie Schlein, who was, of course, also female, who won the leadership of the PD in a kind of upset primary around the same time the shipwreck in Kuturo was taking place. So it will be fascinating to see how in Italy for the first time, where both the government and the opposition are led by women, how those dynamics are going to play out. All right. Second up this week, tumult in Nigeria. Africa's most populous nation recently held national elections to select a successor to outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari, who had had a long but also troubled reign. In the end, Nigeria's election officials have certified a, a winner in this election. However, the winner is a representative of Buhari's All Progressives Congress, that is the ruling party, and there are widespread allegations by the opposition and also by independent observers that this election was marred by irregularities, fraud, vote rigging, or at the very least, if you want a more innocent interpretation, incompetence and breakdown in promised electoral reforms. Now, those notes, as I say, have been struck not only by the political opposition, but also by observers, such as the Catholic Bishops' Conference and the Catholic charity Caritas, which had observers deployed in polling locations in all of Nigeria's states. It does not appear for the moment that these allegations of irregularities are going to be enough to prevent the installation of the new Nigerian government, although opposition figures still have a couple of weeks to mount legal challenges. Catholic observers have said, It will be very important to see what the Nigerian courts do with these challenges. Now, we should note that this isn't just a question of electoral integrity, because behind all of this are very real social and also sectarian divisions in Nigeria. Nigeria is not only a society divided between a kind of thin but very powerful Mega wealthy elite sector of society, and then a kind of vast impoverished clump of humanity at the bottom of the pyramid. It is also a society divided along religious lines. It is the largest mixed Muslim Christian country in the world, with the north of Nigeria being dominated by the Muslim population, the south of the country being dominated by the Christian population. And there have been allegations, both before and during the selection, that there was a systematic effort on behalf of forces in the Muslim north. Some accusations believe those forces, backed by the outgoing Buhari administration, to suppress the turnout in the Christian-dominated southern portions of the country, and thus to promote what critics are talking about as the Islamicization of Nigeria, or the Fulanicization of Nigeria, after the most dominant largely Muslim ethnic group in the country, the Fulani. Now, however much merit there may be to those allegations, they are increasingly being recycled and repeated by critics of the process. And what that means to most observers is that it is all the more important that the Nigerian government and the Nigerian legal system get on top of these suspicions of irregularities and vote rigging before they metastasize, because the last thing anyone wants is a kind of clash of civilizations, ripping apart. Africa's most populous nation, and by all indications, one of the pace setter superpowered nations destined to be in the 21st century. All right, third up this week, the anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Now, that came and went on February 24th. It was marked in a variety of ways by the Vatican. It was marked by Pope Francis once again renewing his own, what you might call, peace plan, the heart of which is a call for an immediate ceasefire. Which would then lead to peace negotiations in which the legitimate concerns of all parties to the conflict, that would of course mean primarily the Ukrainians, but also Moscow and the Putin government in Russia, that their concerns could be aired out and compromises sought that would lead to a stable peace. Now, most observers, a veteran Italian journalist Marco Politi, for instance, writing recently in one of the Italian newspapers, observed that it has been a long time since, from a diplomatic point of view, a pope appeared to be quite as isolated on the defining international crisis of the day as Pope Francis would appear to be vis-a-vis Ukraine. There simply are no takers for this peace proposal. The United States has not even acknowledged it. Most European governments are pretending that it doesn't exist russia has made very clear that they don't consider the vatican a trustworthy broker that is a truly independent party the ukrainians have no interest in a negotiated peace they of course believe that would simply reward russian aggression and so at the end of the day the pope's peace plan is in some ways a kind of diplomatic orphan now the question is does that make it a failure well From one point of view, you could argue that if the Pope's hope is to end this conflict, and of course, on the anniversary, he described this once again as a useless, absurd, and cruel conflict. Now, if his aim is to bring it to an immediate end, then one would have to say that this peace plan does not appear to be accomplishing that objective. On the other hand, we should also say that in the Pope's effort, ongoing effort, To not allow the Vatican to become overly identified with either party to this conflict, that is, not seem like the chaplain of NATO, but also not seem like an altar boy to the Kremlin, to remain non aligned, that that effort, while it may be frustrating to the United States and its European allies, is nevertheless in sync with what a great deal of the rest of the world is trying to do right now. If we look at what is conventionally called the global south, that is, Sub Saharan Africa, most of Asia, most of the Middle East, the Asian superpowers such as India and China, all of them, to varying degrees, are doing precisely what the Holy See appears to be trying to do, which is not allow itself to become identified excessively with either party and therefore maintain the possibility of helping to serve as a kind of arbiter that can bring this conflict to an end. In other words, from a long term point of view, what the Ukraine crisis may be remembered for vis a vis the Vatican isn't so much the success or failure of any immediate initiative that Pope Francis took, but as the final act in this long running historical drama of redefining the Vatican from being yet another Western institution to being, for the first time, a truly independent global institution whose center of gravity no longer is in Europe and North America, but is in the global south, which, of course, is where its population is. And from that point of view, one could say that Pope Francis is in the middle of a high-stakes and truly fascinating global geopolitical experiment. All right, speaking of Pope Francis, we are coming up next Monday. Mark your calendars. March 13th will be the 10-year anniversary of the election of Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio of Argentina to, to the throne of Peter as her history's first pope named Francis. Now, there is going to be an avalanche of verbiage set loose by this occasion, much of it focusing on the key themes, the defining moments, the iconic gestures, the scintillating sound bites, and so on of what has been by every possible measure, a dizzying and dramatic decade of Francis in power. I just have two observations I'm going to throw into the mix here. Obviously, we will have more to say about this next week. Let's begin with an irony about where we are at in terms of the Francis papacy one decade in. So, the big project that Pope Francis has in the hopper right now that he's trying to bring to conclusion over the next couple of years is, of course, his Synod of Bishops on Synodality. The entire exercise intended to make synodality, this process of widespread consultation and listening, what once upon a time might have been called collegiality, only in this case not involving just the bishops, but the entire people of God, the entire church, in a kind of process of shared decision-making, discernment, and reflection. That is the the lodestar. Of the Pope's agenda. It is obviously the core of this synodal process that will reach a crescendo this October with one gathering of bishops in Rome, and then next October, that is October 2024, with the final gathering of bishops in Rome. Now, the great irony we face is that as Pope Francis makes this kind of final push for synodality, operationally, his papacy is becoming increasingly. Well, on the synodal, that is, increasingly, Pope Francis is ruling by decree rather than by discernment or widespread consultation and making decisions in Rome rather than allowing them to play out at lower levels. Let me give you three quick examples. Recently, Pope Francis issued a decree saying that if a bishop wants to give permission for a a parish to use the older Latin mass or for a younger priest to celebrate the older Latin mass, that bishop has to get Vatican permission first. Second, Pope Francis specified that all entities that are connected to the Holy See, whether it's one of the papal basilicas in Rome, such as St. Mary Major, where we are today, right now as we film this episode, or whether it's one of the foundations connected to the Holy See, like the Good Samaritan Foundation, or science, theology, and the ontological quest, or any of these outfits, which traditionally have operated independently as sort of autonomous little feudal kingdoms, he's issued a decree saying that all of their assets are now Vatican papal money and they are all subject to the rules imposed directly, to controls imposed directly by the Pope. Also, the Pope has last summer and recently reaffirmed this, issued a decree saying that if a bishop wants to create a new religious order, even at the very threshold level, of making it a public association of the faithful, which is basically just dipping your toes into creating a religious order, he still has to have written Vatican permission before doing any of that. So on three separate fronts, Pope Francis has taken activity that was once handled at lower levels, typically by the bishop or by independent Catholic organizations, and basically said, nope, from now on, this is all going to be centralized in the Vatican. At the same time, there are also two small convents of nuns in Italy where the Vatican has reached down and made decisions that in the past would have been left to local diocese or to the religious order to figure out. Why is all this happening? It is a standard and dynamic in a papacy that the longer it goes on and the more a pope senses that his time may be limited, the less likely he is to rely on unwieldy and vociferous processes of consultation or to simply entrust lower levels of authority with figuring things out and the more tempted that pope is whether he's left right or center to simply rule directly on the basis of his own authority so one interesting dynamic we face with pope francis at the one decade mark is the the paradoxical question of whether decentralization in the church can successfully be imposed by fiat because that essentially is where we are at. Pope Francis has a decentralizing, democratizing, shared authority agenda that he is increasingly tempted to use his central authority to kind of ram across the finish line. It's going to be fascinating to see whether that actually works. Final observation I'll simply throw into the hopper as we near the one-decade anniversary finish line. And that is, as we focus on the exercise of papal power, which we will over the next several days and weeks, it is worth noting that despite the dramatic contrast between Pope Francis and the two papacies that preceded him, that is, John Paul II and Benedict XVI, and the kind of transition from conservative to progressive governance that that has implied, and you know the, the sort of ongoing civil war in Catholicism that all of this has opened up, it is worth noting that some things appear to be simply beyond the reach of any particular papacy, whether it's conservative or liberal. And my Sunday column this week was intended to illustrate one case in point. I take the data about mass attendance in Italy, reach back really to the era of the Second Vatican Council, but most, in most pronounced form, we're talking about the data for the last 20 years. So from 2001 to 2021, what we see is that over that 20-year period, bear in mind this is Italy. There's no place on earth a pope has more direct control over the ecclesiastical environment than Italy. Over that 20-year period, we have gone from a situation in which 34.6% of Italians said they went to Mass at least once a week. And only... 15.9% said they never went, that was 2001, to a situation in 2021 in which 32.6% of Italians said they never went to Mass, and only 19.2% said they went at least once a week. In other words, these two numbers have crossed and ended up on opposite ends of the spectrum. And bear in mind the period of time we're talking about, 2001 to 2021, that's the last four years of the John Paul years when his cumulative influence should have been at its peak. All eight years of Benedict XVI and the first eight of Pope Francis's ten years. The trend lines were absolutely stable and consistent regardless of who was in charge. If it made a difference in terms of how many Catholics actually show up on Mass on Sunday, Whether the Pope was conservative or liberal, you should have seen a massive spike one way or the other in that transition from the John Paul and Benedict years to the Francis years. No such spike, no such correlation at all. In fact, everything would indicate the opposite, that people's decisions about religious affiliation apparently are deeply personal. They have to do with long-term historical, biographic, psychological, and emotional factors that, frankly, don't have a great deal to do with who's sitting on the throne of Peter and whether we do or don't have open season on the Latin Mass. I mean, big surprise to the church's chattering classes, but the things that we spend most of our time talking about don't actually seem to correlate with the most important decisions at the retail level that individual Catholics are making about their own faith lives. And probably there is a great lesson there for Catholics at all levels about, you know, what we spend a disproportionate share of our time and energy arguing over versus where the real action is. Just something to think about as we sort of live through what is destined to be this Vesuvius of verbiage about papal activity and papal leadership over the next several days and weeks. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all of this on the Crux site. That is CruxNow.com. Once again, CruxNow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.